Well, hi there, and welcome to 45 RPM music of the 40s and 50s. I'm Sam Waldron, and today we're going to explore some stories behind influential music from the 40s and 50s. We'll hear music from Benny Goodman, Julie Andrews, Hank Williams, Jim Lowe, Ray Charles, and we'll listen to part of a very unusual composition written by a guy named John Cage. This promises to be a pretty interesting hour, I think you can learn some things you didn't know about music you probably do know. So let's start off with a story about a 45 RPM record that was released by RCA Victor in 1956. The record sold 10 million copies. The A-side was one of Elvis Presley's biggest ever hits. This is the story about the B-side, which was also one of Elvis's biggest hits ever. Of course, I'm talking about Hound Dog, which was on the A-side, and Don't Be Cruel on the B-side. Both songs quickly rose to the top of the Billboard 100 and made it clear that something big like a revolution was happening in popular music. Don't Be Cruel, the subject of this story, was written by a black teenager from Brooklyn named Otis Blackwell. Somehow, the song made its way to an RCA Victor executive named Steve Scholes, and he handed a demonstration recording to Elvis, saying it was written by Blackwell. Well, the king had admired Otis Blackwell's rhythm and blues songs, and it took Elvis only a few seconds of listening to know he wanted to record it. Years later, songwriter Otis Blackwell said, when he heard Presley was going to record Don't Be Cruel, the first thing I said was, who the hell is Elvis Presley? Well, Blackwell found out soon enough, Elvis recorded Don't Be Cruel in an exhausting seven-hour session, and he wasn't satisfied until he and the musicians had done it 28 times. A month after the record was released, in July 1956, Don't Be Cruel went to number one. Almost half a century later, in 2002, Don't Be Cruel was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. Please tell the phone Don't be cruel To who hard is true Baby, you've made a man For something I might have said Please don't forget my past The future looks bright ahead Don't be cruel To who hard is true I don't want no Stop thinking of me Don't make me feel this way Come on over here and love me You know what I want you to say Don't be cruel To who heart is true Why should we be apart I really love you baby Cross my heart Let's walk up to the preacher And let's say hi to then you'll know you'll have me And I know that I'll have you Don't be cruel To who heart is true 
don't be cruel to a heart that's true. Don't be cruel to a heart that's true. I don't want no other love. Oh, baby, it's just you I'm thinking of. Elvis Presley and Don't Be Cruel. That song was written in 1956 by Otis Blackwell. The following year, Blackwell wrote another song that became a big hit for Elvis, All Shook Up. One story has it, the song originated when Blackwell saw somebody in the studio shaking a bottle of Pepsi. Presley claimed that he came up with the title after having a disturbing dream. In any case, All Shook Up was a million-selling winner for both Blackwell and Presley. I'm Sam Waldron. Today we're telling stories behind some important songs. And here is how just one line of some travel instructions in 1938 turned into one of the biggest big band jazz hits of the 20th century. The short version of the story goes like this. If you're in New York City without a car or cab fare and you want to get to Harlem on the subway, your best bet is to take the A train. That's exactly how Duke Ellington started some written instructions to get to his house. Let's back up just a second. Those instructions were given to a young drugstore delivery boy and soda jerk from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The young man was named Billy Strayhorn. He liked to write music and play the piano when he wasn't working at the drugstore. The two men met at a theater one evening when Ellington was about to perform, and Duke asked Strayhorn to come backstage and play for him after the show. Strayhorn sat down at the piano and demonstrated that he could mimic Ellington perfectly. He said, Mr. Ellington, this is exactly the way you played Sophisticated Lady in the concert. Then he said, this is how I would play it. And that interaction started a collaboration that lasted for 30 years. Ellington offered Strayhorn a job, gave him directions to get to his house on the subway, including the line, take the A train. Strayhorn used that line to write what became one of Ellington's signature songs.
Duke Ellington and Take the A Train. You're listening to 45 RPM Music of the 40s and 50s. I'm Sam Waldron, and I call today's show Songs with Stories. Now, here's another interesting story about a song. When you make a list of the top country artists of the 40s, 50s, and later decades, there are some names that just stand out. Eddie Arnold, Tex Ritter, Dolly Parton, Patsy Cline, Johnny Cash, and a performer whose life ended when he was just 29 years old, Hank Williams. Williams was born in Alabama in 1923. He suffered from a spinal disorder that left him in chronic pain most of his life. He struggled with alcohol and drugs, but he had a distinctive voice and left us with a rich legacy of recordings. Williams got a guitar when he was eight. He learned to play the blues from a street singer named Rufus Payne, started a band, and went on the road to play on the radio in bars and at county fairs. Audiences loved the way he would move on the stage and how he would pick somebody in the audience and just focus on performing to that one person. Williams once told Ralph Gleason of the San Francisco Chronicle that a song ain't nothing in the world but a story just wrote with music to it. Williams wrote and recorded one of those songs in 1949. When Elvis Presley covered it some years later in a TV special, he told the audience, it was probably the saddest song I've ever heard. In 2003, Katie Lang called that song one of the most classic American songs ever written. The song was called I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry. It was recorded on a summer afternoon in Cincinnati with an electric guitar, a steel guitar, and a fiddle, but it was Hank Williams' lyrics and his distinctive voice that gave the recording its intensity. We're not quite through with Hank Williams, but let's listen to that plaintive song, I'm so lonesome I could cry. Hear that lonesome whippoorwill He sounds too blue to fly The midnight train is whining I'm so lonesome I could cry I've never seen a night so long When time goes crawling by The moon just went behind the clouds To hide its face and
silence of a falling star lights up a purple sky and as I wonder where you are I'm so lonesome I could cry Hank Williams and a song he wrote and recorded in 1949 the same year he recorded I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry, Williams appeared on the Grand Old Opry with a hit song called Lovesick Blues. But before long, he was fired because he couldn't be counted on to show up. So, Williams returned to playing in high school gyms and honky-tonks, where he sometimes was drunk and belligerent. In the early morning hours of New Year's Day, 1953, his heart problems, his hard living, the alcohol, and the drugs all finally caught up with Hank Williams. He was found dead in the back seat of his sky-blue Cadillac, parked at a drive-in in a small town in West Virginia. A few weeks later, when Billboard magazine ranked the top country hits, four of the top seven had been recorded by Hank Williams. One of those songs ended with these lyrics, No matter how I struggle and strive, and then that line that's the song's title, I'll never get out of this world alive. Now you're looking at a man that's getting kind of mad. I had a lot to look, but it's all been bad. No matter how struggle and strive, I'll never get out of this world alive. My fishing pole's broke, the creek is full of sand. My woman run away with another man. No matter how struggle and strive, I'll never get out of this world alive. My distant uncle passed away and left me quite a batch. And I was living high until the fatal day A lawyer proved I wasn't born, I was only hatched Everything's against me and it's got me down If I jumped in the river I would probably drown No matter how struggle and strive I'll ever get out of this world alive I'm not gonna worry wrinkles in my brow Cause nothing's ever gonna be alright no how No matter how struggle and strive I'll ever get out of this world alive Hank Williams 
and I'll never get out of this world alive. I'm Sam Waldron on 45 RPM Music of the 40s and 50s, today bringing you an hour of interesting stories behind some important songs. The next story is about a big band piece of music that features some prominent 1940s musicians, including Benny Goodman on clarinet, Harry James on trumpet, Gene Krupa on drums, and when they recorded it one summer day in 1937, they massively broke the rules of recording back then, which required music to last no longer than about three minutes. That was the amount that could be recorded on a 10-inch 78 RPM disc. Their version went on for nearly nine minutes, and it filled up both sides of a 12-inch 78, something that not every record player could accommodate. The song is called Sing, Sing, Sing with a Swing, recorded in Hollywood in July 1937. Six months later, in January 1938, Benny Goodman walked onto the stage to do the final number at a concert at Carnegie Hall. The hall had 2,760 seats, and it was sold out weeks in advance for a top ticket price of $2.75, about $50 today. That night was the first time that a swing band had ever performed there. Swing was regarded in some circles as the devil's music because it seemed to inflame the passions of young people. Music historians now think of this concert as the moment that jazz suddenly was recognized as a valid form of music. When Benny Goodman waved his baton to start Sing, 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 the well-behaved audience, which included Duke Ellington, had no idea what to expect. And then Gene Krupa got everybody's attention by opening the piece on his tom-toms, something that had never been heard before at Carnegie Hall, I'm pretty sure. Betty Goodman did a clarinet solo, and a pianist named Jeff Stacy seemed to steal the show. Count Basie also played a piano solo, struggling for a while, and Goodman just let him keep going until he figured out a groove. The whole thing was a rousing success, making swing music respectable. The concert was recorded and released in 1950 as a two-disc long-playing record, the first jazz album that ever sold more than a million copies. Half a century after the concert, Columbia Records found the original master recording and reissued it as a high-quality CD in 1998. Although the original 1937 recording of Sing 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 was about nine minutes long, here's a version by the same musicians that's about half that long. Thank you. 
Sing, Sing, Sing by Benny Goodman and Friends. Their 1937 recording of that song was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1982. Our next song with a story will be familiar to anybody who grew up in the 1950s. It was recorded late in 1955 by a popular black singing group called The Platters. The music and words were written by Buck Ram, the group's manager and producer, who was also a songwriter. Shortly after The Platters came out with a big hit called Only You, Ram was in Las Vegas, and a recording executive asked him if The Platters had another recording. Ram said they did have one, and it was called The Great Pretender. In fact, that recording was just a fantasy that he had made up on the spot. Ram dashed into a men's room and spent ten minutes writing a simple melody and some words. The Great Pretender was released in November 1955, became the first number one billboard hit for the group. Here's that song that was hastily written in a hotel bathroom, The Great Pretender. the Platters. That group had 40 singles on the Billboard Hot 100 from 1955 through 1967, including three more number one hits, My Prayer in 1956 
and two in 1958, Twilight Time and Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. In the second half of our show, we'll learn the stories behind six more songs, including The Green Door and Stardust, plus one of Ray Charles's best-known songs. I'm Sam Waldron. Today we're exploring songs that have interesting stories behind them. This next piece of music is probably unique, one of a kind, and yet it would be extremely rare for any radio station to play it. Yet I guarantee it will sound familiar to you. Its title is 433, sometimes called 4 minutes 33 seconds. The piece was written in 1952 by an experimental composer named John Cage. It was designed for any single instrument or any combination of instruments. The key thing is that the musicians were instructed not to play their instruments through the entire three movements of the piece, which officially lasts 4 minutes and 33 seconds. The result is just silence, a chance for the audience to hear the sounds of whatever environment they're in. Kind of strange, don't you think? Then in 1951, Cage went to Harvard and visited a special room that was designed so that no sound could get in from the outside, and with walls, ceiling, and floor absorbing any sounds that were made inside the room. Cage expected to hear silence, but he later told the engineer in charge of the chamber he had heard two sounds, one high and one low. The engineer told Cage he was hearing his own nervous system in operation, the high sound, and his blood circulating, the low sound. Cage realized that pure silence was just impossible, and he composed and published 433. I could play this music for you, but on the radio it would be what's called dead air in the industry. So here's what we're going to do. I'll play about 10 seconds of this, and anybody who hasn't been paying attention will think there's something wrong. You, on the other hand, will hear 10 seconds of, well, whatever's in your environment. Here goes. Okay, there you go. An excerpt from a musical composition that calls for 4 minutes and 33 seconds of pure silence. Our next story starts with a play by George Bernard Shaw, first performed in 1913, called Pygmalion. The theme of this play is the relationship between social class and the proper use of grammar and pronunciation. On stage, a language professor named Henry Higgins teaches a lowly London flower girl named Eliza Doolittle to use proper English, after he makes a bet that by doing so, he can elevate her into high society. In 1952, a wordsmith named Alan J. Lerner and a musical composer named Frederick Lowe were offered the chance to turn Pygmalion into a musical comedy, and they took on the project, decided that the character of Henry Higgins should be played by British actor Rex Harrison. So they flew to London and spent five weeks wooing Harrison before he finally agreed. While they were there, Lerner and Lowe went to the Covent Garden Flower Market, at four o'clock in the morning in January, and that visit inspired the opening scene in the show. They recruited a director named Moss Hart and a promising teenage actress named Julie Andrews. The result was a Broadway show, later a movie, called My Fair Lady. The first public performance of My Fair Lady took place in New Haven, Connecticut, in the middle of a blizzard. It almost got canceled because of Rex Harrison. Harrison had never sung on stage before, 
and on the day of the opening, he told the producers he was feeling too insecure after rehearsing with the orchestra. He said he just wasn't going to do it. Moss Hart, the director, went to see Rex and said, Rex, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to talk to that audience, which has mushed its way through all this snow, and I'm going to tell them, Rex Harrison is not going to play tonight because he's afraid of what you might think of him. Well, that did the trick. Harrison went on stage, and from its very first performance, My Fair Lady was a huge hit with audiences. Okay, that's all about the show, and after all that, we deserve to hear Julie Andrews perform a couple of songs from the Broadway musical. First is a song that Lerner and Lowe said they wrote in ten minutes once they got the idea for it. It's called The Rain in Spain. It wraps up all the lessons that Henry Higgins has been teaching Eliza Doolittle for weeks. He's been trying to get her to say things like rain instead of rhine, her lower-class accent. He's been trying to get her to pronounce the H at the start of a word and say he instead of just e. Late one night, when everybody is exhausted, Eliza Doolittle comes up with this, the rain in Spain. The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. Again. The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. I think she's got it. I think she's got it. The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. Hi, George, she's got it. Hi, George, she's got it. Now, once again, where does it rain? On the plain, on the plain. And where's that soggy plain? In Spain, in Spain. The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. Hereford and Hampshire. Hurricanes hardly happen. How kind of you to let me come. Now once again, where does it rain? On the plain, on the plain. And where's that blasted plain? In a Andrews from the Broadway musical My Fair Lady and The Rain in Spain. Halfway through that song, Henry Higgins, so far he's just treated Eliza Doolittle like a lower-class flower girl, suddenly dances around the room with her. He then goes up to bed, and Eliza, who's now in a daze, sings this one. Bed, bed, I couldn't go to bed. My head's too light to try to set it down. Sleep, sleep, 
I couldn't sleep tonight, not for all the jewels in the crown. I could have danced all night, I could have danced all night, and still have begged for more. I could have spread my wings and done a thousand things. What made it so exciting? Why all at once my heart took flight? I only know when he began to dance with me, I could have danced, danced, danced all It's after three now, don't you agree? She ought to be in bed. You could have done out all night. You must be dead. Could have Your face is drawn. Your eyes are red. Now say good night, please. Turn out the light, please. It's really time for you to be in bed. I could have to come along to as your turn. Oh, Mrs. Pierce is up to skirt. You're up to late, Miss. Insurance late, Miss. You catch a cold. I'll never know what made it. from the original Broadway musical, My Fair Lady. My Fair Lady is one of my favorite movies of all times, and you've probably heard of it. If you haven't seen it, I think you should. Now let's turn to what was undoubtedly one of the most recorded songs of the 20th century, Stardust, written by Hoagy Carmichael. Carmichael once said he wrote the song while he was struggling as a law clerk in Florida and just waiting in vain, it turned out, for some business to walk in the door. But another story, one he later told in an interview with the BBC, is a little more interesting. Carmichael said he was 28 years old when he was walking across the campus of Indiana University, and he started 
whistling a tune that he was making up, he suddenly realized he had something strange and different. Carmichael said he quickly found a piano and worked the tune out some more. Then the next day he hummed a few notes to a friend and forgot all about it. Two months later he saw his friend, who asked whatever happened to that song. Hoagie, what song? Friend, the one you started writing six or eight weeks ago. Here. And the friend walks over to a piano and bangs out a dozen notes with one finger. Oh, that one, Carmichael replied. As Carmichael said to the BBC, would you believe I'd almost forgotten Stardust? And if he hadn't played it, I might never have continued with that song. Stardust has been recorded more than 2,000 times. I certainly haven't listened to all those recordings. My all-time favorite Stardust is by Nat King Cole, although Johnny Mathis, Vic Damone, Frank Sinatra, and Willie Nelson all certainly did it justice. Here's another great recording, sung by Rod Stewart. dusk of twilight time steals across the meadows of my heart high up in the sky the little stars climb always reminding me that we're apart you wander down the lane and far away leaving me a song that will not die Love is now the stardust of yesterday The music of the years gone by Sometimes I wonder why I spend the lonely song the melody haunts my reverie and I am once again with you when our love was new and each kiss an inspiration but that was long ago now my consolation is in the stardust of a song Beside a garden wall When stars are bright You are in my arms The nightingale tells his fairy tale A paradise where roses bloom Though I dream in vain in my heart it always will remain my stardust melody the memory of love's refrain But that was long ago 
Now my consolation is in the stardust of a song Beside a garden wall When stars are bright You are in my arms The nightingale tells his fairy tale A paradise where roses bloom Though I dream in vain In my heart It always will remain My stardust melody The memory of love's refrain Stardust, sung by Rod Stewart. Now let's turn to a 1956 recording that climbed to the top of the Billboard Hot 100, yet nobody is quite sure what the lyrics of this song are about. The Green Door, recorded by Jim Lowe, is about the mystery of what's going on behind a door, apparently leading to a private club. He tries to get in, but he never finds out exactly what is behind that door. So what's the answer? During Prohibition years, the Green Door Tavern in Chicago became a popular source of forbidden liquor, and many restaurants painted their doors green, a signal that illegal drinks were available. Some people have speculated the song refers to the first lesbian club in London, which had a green door. I think in the end we'll never know for sure. If you do an online search for the Green Door, you'll find references to a social club in Las Vegas, a 1970s porno movie, all sorts of bars, restaurants, and marijuana dispensaries. Finally, here's a little twist in the story. A business that was named after the song. Yep, the owners of an arts and craft shop in Bel Air, Maryland, named their business for this recording by Jim Lowe. an old piano and they play it hot behind the green door don't know what they're doing but they laugh a lot behind the green door wish they let me in so i could find out what's behind the green door Someone laughed out loud behind the green door All I want to do is join the happy crowd behind the green door
from 1955. Our last story is about Ray Charles. It starts one evening in 1959 when he was on tour. Toward the end of a performance, he had run out of material and knew he had to fill in some time before he made his exit. Naturally, he improvised. He told his backup singers, you don't know this next one, just follow my lead and we'll do fine. Then he made up lyrics that he admitted later don't make any sense. The crowd loved it, and the song became known as What I Say? He repeated it the next night, and then a few more times, and he realized from the audience response he had a hit. Charles said he thought what was important about the song was not the verses, but the beat. When he recorded it in the studio, Charles told the musicians that when he stopped, he wanted them to all start talking at once and act like they wanted him to keep going. You'll hear this, and it was all by design, in order to separate what Atlantic Records called Part 1 and Part 2. That's where you'll hear... One more time. Radio stations at the time wanted every song to be about two and a half minutes long, and Charles recalled that any record that went on longer than that could be in trouble. To his surprise, most radio stations played the whole thing. You'll hear, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, which Charles used to get the audience involved, and it always worked. This was always the last song I would do on stage, he said. They knew that was the end, there was no encore, and they could just let fly with their emotions. Other musicians made fun of Ray Charles for doing this song on an electric piano, an instrument that back then was pretty primitive by today's standards and was regarded as just a toy. But Charles said he liked the sound of it. And I think that little itty-bitty piano really captured the public's attention. What I Say went on to become one of his all-time best-selling songs, a number he would continue to play throughout the rest of his life. So after I pass along our best wishes from everybody here at 45 RPM, Julie Andrews, Hank Williams, Duke Ellington, Elvis Presley, The Platters, and so many more, let's hear Ray Charles and What Did I Say? Parts 1 and 2.
gonna send you back to Arkansas. Oh, yes, ma'am. You don't do right. Don't do right. When you see me in misery, come on, baby, see about me now.